when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, your regular discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne, and we're no longer the FT Election Countdown. In our last episode of 2019, we'll be discussing the return of Parliament, another Queen's speech, another legislative agenda, and yes, another debate on the Brexit withdrawal agreement. We've also got a new Bank of England governor, a couple of new Tory peers, and a mini-government reshuffle. Plus, we'll be digging into the latest in the Labour leadership contest, and Nicola Sturgeon's demands for another Scottish independence referendum. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Picard and Scotland Correspondent Muir Dickey. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then don't forget to subscribe to all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. We also appreciate a nice review. So we've reached the end of the political year and after the big election result and that victory for Boris Johnson, it's been a rather quiet end to the year in Westminster. Parliament returned. Her Majesty the Queen came in her Bentley not gold carriage to have another state opening of Parliament. And as the Prime Minister promised, the Brexit legislation has come back and been debated. So George Parker, let's begin with that Queen's speech. These things are very odd affairs. All the pomp and circumstance of the British state comes out, although not quite as much pomp as normal. And the legislative agenda was basically a carbon copy version of what was in the Tory manifesto, which was in itself not a lot. Yeah, I've covered quite a few Queen's speeches over the years, and this was probably the lowest key, I suppose, in the sense that you know, it was a rerun a bit of the one we had only two months ago when the Queen did turn up with her crown and the horse and carriage, but with some interesting new additions to the Queen's speech. But as you say, I mean, the bills were all trailed in the manifesto. But nevertheless, we shouldn't underestimate the scale of the Queen's speech. I mean, there's a massive amount of stuff in there. We were used in the Theresa May years to very thin Queen's speeches and habitually the leader of the opposition would stand up and say the speech is interesting for the stuff that's not in there. This one's interesting for all the stuff that is in there. I mean, it's a pretty broad canvas that Boris Johnson's painting on, not just, of course, the Brexit bill, the withdrawal bill, but six bills to help deliver Brexit, but right across the waterfront, whether it's the NHS or sentencing or employment reforms and things like that. So in spite of the fact the Queen was, wasn't was attended by all the usual pomp and circumstance, it was still nevertheless, I think, quite an important moment. Miranda Green, when you look at what the government is planning, obviously the focus for the next six weeks is entirely about Brexit and hitting that January 31st deadline, which nobody thinks we're going to miss now. But after that, as George said, there's quite a lot of domestic stuff they're focusing on. So they're going to put this bill forward to put more money into the NHS. Great. They're going to slash business rates for high streets, which Tory MPs have been asking for for years years, I think, now. But then also kicking off all sorts of reviews. We've got the infamous Constitution Democracy Review, the Fixed Term Parliament Act, thankfully, is going to be repealed. So if you compare it to when Tony Blair came in in 97, and one of his big regrets was that they didn't really move quick enough when they had that big victory, Boris Johnson seems to be doing the opposite. Yeah, so the scale of it is, I think, very ambitious. And actually, some of these other things that are not Brexit, you could see them being described as the centrepiece of a programme. 
in other years. So it is an ambitious programme. The constitutional review is clearly the thing that has got people who are not on board for the Boris Johnson project the most worried because there's a sort of worry that after the Supreme Court ruling the prorogation not legal earlier this year, that this is some sort of prelude to revenge on the Supreme Court itself and then attempts to rebalance the relationship between Parliament, the executive and the courts. Ramsey, can I just quickly come in on yeah. that? There was an interesting moment, a lobby briefing this week on the Supreme Court question where Number 10 was unable to deny suggestions that they might politicise the appointments to the Supreme Court, go down the American route and that caused a bit of a kerfuffle in the Cabinet and Robert Buckland, the Justice Secretary, understandably very worried and very quickly they ruled that out. But a sign of the ambition, I think. Absolutely. And of course, Brenda Hale, who was in charge of the Supreme Court, is about to stand down. So in a sense, her going means that people who thought of her as a kind of figurehead for standing up for the rules is out. And what do they really mean by this review? So that will be, I think, an area of really quite dramatic controversy over the next few months. It's also worth saying that on the NHS, nobody's going to deny that it's good to see more money going into the NHS. But of course, 3.3% annual increase is less than the historical average. So it is not going to solve their political problems with an underfunded, understaffed NHS. And that proved to be, even in the election campaign, something that people still were thinking about right up there with Brexit. So that becomes an ongoing concern. I think on the kind of regional policy infrastructure spending, that emphasis on high streets, you were quite right to pick that out. You know, people who do focus groups have been telling me for months that the subject of rundown high streets and dilapidated town centres is the one issue that comes up totally unprompted, whatever else they think they're talking to the voters about. If they can make people feel that the places that they live are being cared for again and that local businesses are being given a shout, that will be quite powerful politically, I think. Can I jump in on the constitutional affairs thing for a moment? Because I was at a debate about this the other day and someone made the very interesting point that if we hadn't known about what had happened in the last two or three years, actually what the Conservatives have said they're going to do would not seem that extraordinarily contentious at all. So if we view it through the prism of all the recent problems in Parliament and some of the fast and loose ways that Boris Johnson and others have played with the Constitution, it's worrying. But if you actually look at this from the point of view of things that don't work very well, then there's something to be said. The judicial review process, while it's done many good things, it has also tied up government in all kinds of ways and stops government from doing things that it's been elected to do. There's a passage in the manifesto about looking at access to justice. And we know that that's a real problem for a lot of people who don't have the right representation, don't have the right way to use the law to their own advantage as well. The fixed term parliament you mentioned, it clearly caused enormous problems within parliament over the last two or three years. So although... Didn't actually stop people calling general elections, though, did it? Well, it did leave a situation in place where government couldn't do the one thing it was trying to do and couldn't be brought down either, which is clearly not optimal. And also the whole issue of the unelected House of Lords. I think there are things really worth looking at. And although there are reasons to be nervous, there are also reasons to look at this and say, well, let's see who they put on it and let's see how they go about it. Because nobody could say that the British constitution is in perfect state at the moment. I think when you look at the whole package, George, what it feels to me is there's going to be a lot of stuff that happens very quickly at the beginning of this government. So as you mentioned, £1 billion into social care, the extra funding for the NHS, passing the Brexit withdrawal agreement. And then we'll have a bit of a gap as all these sort of reviews and inquiries then start to kick off. So they'll look at social care, they'll look at the constitution. So they're going to move quite fast 
to get those easy wins in. But then there's going to be this down period. But then, as Miranda said, coming back to that point of high streets, that's something a lot of the new Conservative MPs from these mm. red wall seats have said to me is that people want to have something feel so they can feel is tangible, is better in their lives. Because that's what Boris Johnson needs to do. Because no doubt when he begins to think about his re-election pitch, it's going to be giving me another five years to finish the transformation. But he's got to achieve some of those tangible things. And slashing business rates is a good start, but it doesn't solve the big problem about the future of the high street. And the same with social care too. No, I think that's right. You know, to use the jargon, it's that there's a lot of retail stuff in there for people who voted Conservative possibly for the first time, which makes entire sense. And I totally agree with Miranda. You just want to get on with this stuff now as far as you can. A lot of the big reviews that people like us will be talking about, constitutional review, won't bother people in the real world very much at all. And they will take a year or two to play out. I think the thing is that in this situation he's in at the moment, of course, with this 80 strong majority, you want to get on and do as much stuff as you can. But next year, I suspect we'll also be talking about an awful lot of stuff which is out with his control, which will become bigger stories. Obviously, the EU negotiation, the whole question about Scottish independence will be there as well. And the other thing which wasn't talked about much in the election is under the new fiscal rules they set out for themselves, they're operating on an incredibly tight fiscal framework. They've got a lot of money, which we've talked about a lot, to spend on infrastructure by changing the rules on borrowing, so they can borrow 3% of GDP to splurge on things that will have a real-life impact in the North and the Midlands. But at the same time, the services that people depend upon are going to be really tightly squeezed. The government has about £5 billion worth of headroom on day-to-day spending. That could easily be eroded by a slight downturn in the economy. And then the austerity that people think is over will stretch and that will have a real impact on people's lives. Now, the other thing we had this week, Miranda, was a non-reshuffle, which was that because there were a couple of gaps in the cabinet resulting from people losing their seats or resigning. And so we had a new Welsh secretary in the form of Simon Hart, who is a very centrist Tory and replaces Alan Cairns, who was basically pushed out of his office over allegations in a rape case in Cardiff. But then the other two, the most curious, was Nicky Morgan, who stepped down as an MP, and Zach Goldsmith, who lost his seat. And magically, they've both been <laughs> elevated to the House of Lords this week and remain in situ. It's raised a few eyebrows, to say the least, in Westminster. Yes, well, I was pleased to hear Robert defending the constitutional review on the grounds that it might look at the House of Lords. So maybe, you know, these outrageous examples of somebody getting kicked out by the electorate or choosing not to face the electorate and then finding themselves still in the cabinet room. Maybe we won't have to put up with that as British voters in the future. It does seem fairly outrageous, but then on the other hand... As we've discussed, it seems that the mood is that with such a comprehensive majority in the Commons, they just want to get on. And in a sense, what are they going to get? They're going to get, at worst, a lot of people like me being irritated about Zach Goldsmith staying in the government for a couple of days. And then we'll all move on to talk about the things that they think the voters really care about. So in a sense, they'll take the hit and move on on that sort of you know naughtiness, because I do think it's very naughty to do it. I think some of the cheekiness, we'll see whether it works. We've heard in the last few hours that after the end of January, they're going to try and stop using the word Brexit. You know, it feels extremely outrageous considering we're going to be in these difficult negotiations, as George has said, which will dominate the agenda for the rest of the year. But of course, they're really hoping that the public will just cease to pay attention and cease to care about it because they will feel that Brexit has been done as they promised in the election. And Robert, this all looks forward to what we're expecting to be a much bigger cabinet reshuffle once we have left the EU and are in the transition period when everyone in the government is expecting a big shake-up, lots of new faces to be brought in, a very different style of government as well, because that's another thing the new Conservative MPs are saying. They want to see, I guess, less Jacob Rees-Mogg's in the cabinet and more people who might be akin to Sajid Javid. 
It was only one Jacob Rees-Mogg in the cabinet now. So, <laughs> so less is a fairly decisive moment. Um, <laughs> I think that's absolutely right. I do think also the two elevations to the House of Lords that Miranda and you were talking about may look different in a few months' time after a comprehensive reshuffle. I think Nikki Morgan has indicated she doesn't expect to stay on as culture secretary. So I do think Boris Johnson is going to want to refashion this government, I think quite sensibly, decided to get through the withdrawal bill, get past Christmas, and then have a real look at it early in the new year and fashion a government that does look like the party he wants to be. I think it's important because I was just thinking back to when George was talking about the high streets and this point about problems that you're not actually in control of. There is this tremendous first flush of excitement when everybody thinks they can do everything because they've just won an election. And all these ideas are mooted from very, very clever people in Downing Street who think that all the problems of the country are down to the fact there was never anybody as clever as them in there before. And these aren't just very, very difficult problems. I mean, the high street, for example, is not fading away in lots of places because successive governments decided it was a good idea for it to happen. It's fading away because of forces that are beyond government's control. So they can do a lot and they can change the way they look. They can change the way they sound. They can focus on the priorities that they have to address. But the truth is, some of the big issues which led us to the place we are now are very, very difficult for any single government to deal with. And I think the issue for Boris Johnson is to try and keep the honeymoon he feels he's enjoying going as long as he can, because it isn't going to last forever. And I mean, I think Miranda's point about not saying Brexit anymore. There's going to come a point where saying get thingy done is going to look a bit silly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, George, the week is ending on Friday with two quite busy things happening. And the first is a new Bank of England governor. This is something that's been in the works for quite a long time. And Sajid Javid has chosen Andrew Bailey as the person to replace Mark Harney come early next year. The politics behind this choice are interesting because Bank of England governors are obviously chosen for their experience of running a major central bank. But also it's an innately political appointment if you think back to when George Osborne Mm. chose Mark Carney. It was very much his view of a global, outward-looking Britain, but Sajid Javits had a different view with Mr Bailey. Yes. Now, the Treasury is insistent that Brexit and the views of the candidates on Brexit had nothing whatsoever to do with the selection of Mr Bailey. So we have to put that out there first of all. However, it should be noted that Mr Bailey has previously written about the opportunities that could be afforded by Brexit. So he's not someone who's been especially critical of Brexit. And I think if you are sitting in Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid's position and you're making this decision, you will be looking for people who will at least be optimistic about the possibilities of Brexit rather than necessarily criticising it, as the Bank of England was seen to have done under Mark Carney's position. And there was a feeling that Mark Carney had been dragged into the political arena by warning of some of the economic downsides of Brexit. And there was a lot of speculation in the summer that Manoush Shafiq, who's the director of the London School of Economics, might be the front runner. And she has been critical of Brexit. And it's not entirely clear at what point she stopped being a potential candidate. But nevertheless, I think Mr Bailey is the safe choice, always appeared to be the safe choice, notwithstanding the fact there have been a couple of scandals on his watch at the Financial Conduct Authority. Because there was some speculation, Robert, that the government might choose Gerard Lyons, who is a very strong Brexiter and was in the running and has been a long-standing advocate of Brexit. But it looks as if, as George said, they have very much gone for the safe choice, which I guess will reassure the city, given how sceptical some people are of Mr Johnson's Brexit plans. I think we can all get overly po-faced about politicising these appointments. The governor of the Bank of England is an important appointment for any government and some politics is bound to come into it. But the significant thing 
as George was saying, is that they have given the job to a man who people can see as a plausible and sensible choice and is not there just because of any opinions that he may have espoused, but because of his track record and his history. I mean, I was talking to somebody long, long, long before the election. In fact, so far back that I think Theresa May was still prime minister. And as they put it then, you know, Andrew Bailey was the base level candidate. There was somebody there who was good enough and who they could give the job to. They were going to look around and see if there were other more exciting or exotic candidates. But he was always there in the mix as the one against whom others were measured. Yeah, I think definitely they needed to reinforce this idea of a fresh start, didn't they? And however much you might think Mark Carney has done many things right, there's been noises off from the Bank of England throughout the Brexit saga so far. And they really didn't want any more kind of hashtag unhelpful contributions. Mm. And finally, George, the last thing that we end the particular year on is Brexit, pretty much where we began, where the withdrawal agreement bill has been reintroduced to the House of Commons, as Mr Johnson promised during the election campaign. And we've seen the debate and watching it this morning, it makes your heart sink because we've heard all the arguments before. Nobody has budged one bit since the last time this tried to get through Parliament in October. I guess the only crucial difference is that Mr Johnson has taken out some of the stuff from the bill which was put in there to win over Labour rebels because he's got a majority of 80 and doesn't need support from anyone but his own MPs. Yeah, well, the atmosphere in the House of Commons had changed completely on Friday as they were debating this. All the sort of acrimony around the deadlock that was caused and the fact the thing wasn't going to go through evaporated. And you did get the sense there was a sort of lifting of the mood and Boris Johnson was saying that even using the labels Remainers and Leavers seems so outdated these days, a point Miranda was making that they hope next year after we leave the EU that Brexit will become a distant folk memory of the British nation and you know, people will gradually forget about it and the talks with the EU will just seen as any other trade negotiation like the one we're having with New Zealand, of course, and all the rest of it. I think, the, yeah, as you say, the significant thing was that the withdrawal bill was significantly toughened up compared with the one that they previously published before the election. They took out the employment rights stuff to appear somewhere else in the Queen's speech. They put in this remarkable thing where they ban themselves from doing something they say they're not going to do, which is extending the transition period. They've reduced the amount of scrutiny that Parliament can put over the negotiating mandate for a trade deal. And all of that is all part of the package that Boris Johnson has arrived and is determined to confound those people, including some people in his cabinet that I've spoken to, who thought he would use this big majority to move to a softer form of Brexit, to marginalise the hardliners in the European Research Group. At least for the moment, the signal is the precise opposite. Well, this is the kind of nub of it, isn't it, really? We knew that with a decent majority the Prime Minister would be able to do what he wants and choose the path that he really intended rather than being buffeted this way and that. But it appears that the path he's choosing may not be the one we had hoped for in the hours after the exit poll landed, which was that this new intake of MPs representing industrial areas in the Midlands and the North would mean a softer Brexit. That may not come to pass. I think you do have to allow for the possibility that we're at the very, very start of this process and that while what they're saying today reflects their optimal position, they understand that things will change and when they get into the nub of this and that actually there's no point in weakening before you even start. So although I do think this reflects their honest position, it hasn't come into contact with reality yet and we'll have to see how it goes. There is something terribly strange about all these pieces of legislation which forced the government to do the things it says it wants to do anyway. There's something terribly bizarre, both in the withdrawal bill and also in the, the NHS legislation. We're going to force ourselves to do something we want to do anyway. There's Gordon Brown started this, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, it is the highest of posturing. And, and in a sense, it just has that element to me of people protesting a little too much. So while I don't doubt the sincerity of the moment, 
I think there's a long way to go in this process and we'll just have to see how that plays out. Just don't call it Brexit, though. Away from Westminster, the main topic dominating things has been the Labour leadership contest, which is gradually picking up steam. Two candidates have formally declared their intention to succeed Jeremy Corbyn, Shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury and Junior Energy Shadow Minister Clive Lewis. But plenty of others are mulling over bids from Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer to prominent backbencher Jess Phillips. But already there's been a lot of bloodletting and a lot of candidates mulling over a bid. But also north the border, things have been developing as Nicola Sturgeon has ramped up calls for a second Scottish independence referendum following the SNP's strong performance in the general election. So Jim Picard, let's begin with the Labour leadership contest. Just give us a general outline of where things lie, who's declared and how the contest is shaping up. So only two people have formally declared so far. One is Emily Thornbury, the Shadow Foreign Secretary, and the other is Clive Lewis, the more junior Shadow Energy Minister, um, both offering quite different things. Emily Thornbury, much more soft left. Clive Lewis would kind of take the revolution and keep burnishing it. Climate change is one of his major concerns. He's a proper left winger, but it wouldn't be continuity Corbyn in the sense that him and Team Corbyn fell out a long time ago because he was very much a Remainer. And then in terms of everyone else, there are a lot of people sort of flashing a bit of ankle but not actually declaring. So Keir Starmer, he's giving the sort of interviews one gives when one is about to run for the leadership without actually declaring. Rebecca Long-Bailey, we know without a shadow of doubt she's going to run. And then Lisa Nandy, probably yes. Jess Phillips could be the relatively Blairite dark horse in this contest for the glittering prize of being leader of a totally wrecked Labour Party. It's a bit of a wooden spoon of an award, isn't it? The two things that have taken my notice so far in the early days of this contest, Jim, first of all is how much bloodletting has already happened since the Corbyn victory. Now, some of it's been pent up over the past couple of years of his leadership, while MPs have kept their criticisms of the leader to themselves, just knowing that there was no point because he was very much secure at the top of the party. And the second thing is the sheer number of candidates that you always get a lot of people going to declare they're going to run. If we remember the Tory leadership contest, there were bids by, you know, James Cleverley and Kit Malthouse that went nowhere very fast. But it does show that there is going to be some kind of proper debate, it appears, about where Labour should go next. Yeah, and I haven't mentioned Yvette Cooper, who said that she's going to spend her Christmas thinking about this. And I haven't mentioned Angela Rayner, who's tucking in behind Rebecca Long-Bailey as a kind of running mate for the deputy ship. I think we're probably going to end up with a shorter shortlist than the Tories. I mean, that was a ludicrously long one, wasn't it? Other people I haven't mentioned, David Lammy. It could be a fairly crowded field. And what they have to do this time is that in contrast to 2015, when all you needed was 15% of MPs and MEPs, listeners will remember how Jeremy Corbyn was kind of patronisingly assisted over the line by loads of people such as Sadiq Khan who didn't for a second and Margaret Beckett didn't for a second want to be leader but they just sort of condescendingly thought that it would be lovely to widen the debate and have a token lefty left winger in there. This time the rules are different. You need a lower number of MPs and MEPs. It's 10% which is about 22 given the routes that they suffered last week. And then on top of that, they also need three affiliates. So, for example, unions. 
it feels to me like most of the action has been around discussing about Rebecca Long Bailey so far because it appears that she is going to be the anointed Corbyn successor. And the question for MPs in the membership is do they want a decisive break with the Corbyn era given the election result or do they take the view of a lot of Mr Corbyn supporters that actually the policies were popular, it was just Brexit and maybe a little bit Jeremy himself because it feels like that's what a lot of the debate has been. And then also Keir Starmer as well who, according to internal policy, Polls that were leaked, um, I think, to ITV's Robert Peston showed that he's incredibly popular with the party's membership. Yeah, I ran into someone in the party a few nights ago who told me about that YouGov poll that put Keir Starmer way ahead, I was told, everyone else. But we know that these contests can be very fluid and that just in a matter of days, things can change once they're actually in the hustings and they're stood in front of the membership taking questions. All sorts of kind of interesting fluid dynamics can happen. And I think... Once you've cleared the hurdle of the MPs and there are questions about whether, for example, Clive Lewis is going to get enough MPs if Rebecca Long-Bailey sweeps up most of the sort of hard left, there are going to be these candidates put in front of a membership which we know has become much more left-wing under Jeremy Corbyn, but we don't know the precise proportion of hard left versus soft left or whatever you want to call it. We can look at the Owen Smith challenge in 2016 where I think the victory of Corbyn was 60-40. We know that quite a few members have left since then but then another 50,000 have come in according to my sources since the start of the election campaign. So we also don't know whether staring such a massive defeat in the face will have changed some members' worldviews. I mean if you look at social media it doesn't look like it but you never know. And therefore The really interesting question for me is, I think we're still going to end up with someone who wants a pretty left-wing agenda, but are they going to go for someone that is the sort of acolyte of Jeremy Corbyn or someone like Keir Starmer, who would actually not suddenly announce in three months' time that he wants to privatise everything and invade the Middle East. He would try and sort of stay true to the vague spirit of Corbynism, but he would probably take things in a more moderate direction in other ways. And the other person, finally, that I imagine our listeners may be thinking about is Jess Phillips, because as you said, she is probably the most Blairite of the candidates, although probably not particularly Blairite if you compare to someone like Alan Milburn from back in the day. She looks almost certainly as if she's going to her. And I've seen that Peter Kyle, who was one of the big pro-Remain campaigners, has been urging her to go into the race. Now, if she did, do you think she's got any hope at all? So on the face of it, you would have thought that she would be a hopeless cause because of all the anti-Jeremy Corbyn things that she has said and done over the years. And she's been openly dismissive and hostile towards the Corbyn project, which if we believe that the membership is still sort of formed in the image of the great leader, and remember the membership has soared from 200,000 to well over half a million since he became leader, mostly people attracted by him... And yet, you know, my personal take on this, this isn't a prediction, we've stopped doing predictions for obvious reasons. But my view on this is if you look at contests around the world in in recent years, it seems to be the interesting people keep winning. So it's not necessarily the more left wing or the more right wing. You look at Macron, he just had a dynamism and an energy and he was interesting. Trump won, he was more interesting. Boris Johnson won because he just had vastly more charisma than all those other Tory candidates. And in that context, you could see someone like Jess Phillips, who she may not be a true Corbynista, but she certainly hates Tory governments and wants to replace them. And she has a spirit and attitude and she has a massive social media presence and people, more centrist MPs, like to think that she could sort of be more appealing to middle Britain. The question is really whether she can get through the membership.
Let's turn to things north of the border now. And ever since the election result, Nicola Sturgeon has hopped on the increased number of SNP MPs to say now is the time to hold another Scottish independence referendum. Now, Muir Dickey, you've obviously been following this for the FT here. How much of this is about actually wanting a referendum now versus just saying it because he's got a big opportunity to, because it's very clear in Westminster, Boris Johnson is not going to sign off on the order to give another referendum any time in the near future. That may, of course, change after 2021. I guess it's good posturing for the First Minister. The official line is still very much that Scotland should have an independence referendum next year and that this stonking victory in the general election in Scotland for the SNP strengthens that mandate, so it should be game on. However, it was striking Nicola Sturgeon's press conference on Thursday that without formally changing the line, the very much the tone of her comments was that she is relaxed and confident that the cause will prevail in the end. In other words, she wasn't sort of ramping things up in the near term. She didn't, for example, make any threats about what she might do if Boris Johnson doesn't approve a referendum next year. Instead, she was stressing the belief that if the Conservatives continue to reject a call for an independence referendum, that that will actually boost support for independence itself. And many people around Sturgeon have been very aware that there's been no consistent majority for independence. And there's <laughs> absolutely no guarantee that if there was a referendum next year, that the independence cause would win. So you can see potential advantages for Sturgeon in a standoff that leads up to the Scottish parliamentary elections in 2021 that makes those elections about the right to have a referendum and not about SNP's record in government and which on current polling could well yield another majority in Parliament for independence referendum and make it increasingly difficult for Westminster to refuse. Indeed, and this obviously that's over a year away and an awful lot can happen in that period there. But what's the sort of rough state of where the Scottish Conservatives are at the moment? Because you can view it glass half full or half empty. On the half full side, they kept six MPs, which was a lot more than they had for a long time. But on the other side, they lost more than half their MPs in some very tight contests with the SNP. And, you know, that it's certainly been perceived, I think, from Westminster's view as a very bad thing for the unionist cause there. Because I guess Scottish Labour was totally destroyed in that election. So the only people making the case against the referendum and against independence looks as if it's going to be the Scottish Tories. Well, of course, the vagaries of first past the post mean that Labour and the Liberal Democrats are very much marginalised in Scotland, but they will have a bigger say in the Scottish parliamentary elections in 2021. Labour is in complete disarray and indeed its future as a credible kind of pro-union force in Scotland is very much in doubt. But for the Conservatives, there is, I suppose, the result of the general election, if you'd offered them six seats at the beginning of the campaign, they probably would have been relieved by it because it looked then that they might be almost completely wiped out. But by the eve of the poll, they were very optimistic of retaining almost all of their then 13 seats and were sorely disappointed on the day. There's no question that the election has shown the limits of appealing to Scots who want to stay in the UK, but yet are supportive or at least tolerant of Boris Johnson's Brexit. And 
unless Brexit turns out to be much better than the majority of voters in Scotland expect, that could continue to be a real problem for them. And it feels like so much of the debate in Scotland is going to be shaped about what Brexit ultimately looks like. And if Mr Johnson pursues a Brexit deal that does damage manufacturing and does harm the economy, that will boost the case for independence. But on the other hand, if he managed to see through a smooth Brexit with not too much economic disruption, that would help the unionist cause. Yes. And if his increased spending in England results, as it would in more financial resources for the Scottish government, and if the predictions of disaster are proved wrong and the sunlit uplands of Brexit turn out to be real after all, then you could imagine a shift away from independence and greater potential for growth of the Conservative Party. But without those things, it does look pretty gloomy for them. And Jim, just to come back to you on Labour with its view to Scotland as well, because one of the big problems the party does have and its next leader will have to contend with is how badly it's done in Scotland. And if you think over the past five years, how much Labour has declined as a force north of the border, you know, posters often say it's impossible for Labour to win a majority without winning back Scotland. But Jeremy Corbyn really, really struggled with that. And of course, the party struggled with this question of does it back an independence referendum or not? And remember when John McDonnell popped up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and suddenly seemed to change Labour Party policy without telling Labour's leader in Scotland, Richard Leonard, about it. Yeah, they're in deep, deep trouble north of the border and it's easy to forget how many seats Labour used to have only four years ago. They had 41 seats in Scotland and they're literally down to one. Ian Murray, who, because he's a centrist, doesn't get to be Shadow Scotland Secretary. Someone else is doubling up on that one. As an aside, it was really tricky for them during the election campaign because no one thought for a second or wrote even that there was any chance for Labour getting majority. So all of our analysis was about could it be conceivable that they could scrape together a government that involved a cobbled together alliance with the SNP, at which point everyone said, well, what are you going to give the SNP to do this alliance? And the only thing they could offer them that would bring them on board would be the second referendum. But as soon as you say that, then you have self-identified north of the border as pro-independence. And unfortunately, people who are passionate about independence already have somewhere to place the cross, which is the SNP. And so I think Labour probably lost quite a lot of the unionist vote. I mean, Muir would know better than me on the ground there. And just generally, it's as if Labour was a brand in Scotland which was strong for a very long time then became very faded and boring. And they're just struggling so much just to sound exciting and relevant and interesting in Scotland. Yeah, absolutely. I think Labour has tried to straddle independence, knowing that many of its traditional supporters actually support independence. It has tried not to alienate them while also being seen to stand up for the union. And that's proved a very difficult mission, just as their attempt to straddle Brexit issue proved very difficult across the UK. And and sort of having an indistinct policy on the biggest issues of the day hasn't worked for Labour, combined with the widespread belief that they took the Scottish electorate for granted in the days of their prime. And you can see a lot of demand for more left politics in Scotland than the SNP, which is in general pretty centrist, have offered. But Labour looks still some distance from being on a road to recovery. 
Well, that brings us together nicely for our final episode of the year. Thank you very much to George, Miranda, Robert, Jim and Muir for joining us. And that's it for 2019. I have to thank all of our listeners and guests for helping us make through one of the most turbulent political years in living memory. But there's also someone else very special to thank, which is our producer, Anna Dedda, who has stood waiting many times for me to be late at the studio. But she's been the driving force behind every single episode of FT Politics. And hopefully she'll be back for more next year. Over the Christmas period, we're going to have two special interviews with some departing FT colleagues. Next week, we'll have a discussion with Lionel Barber, who's leaving as FT editor after 14 years in the top seat, talking about the politics he's observed and written about over his 30 years at the paper. And then after that, we'll have James Blitz, our white editor who's had a similarly long career at the FT, serving as our political editor, defence editor, diplomatic and Rome correspondent. So do tune into those the Christmas Blake for something a little bit more reflective. And of course, if you've liked what you've heard and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find as ever at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, Thanks for listening and have a happy Christmas. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.